If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 50 years ago, Magnavox Odyssey was launched. It was the world's first commercial home video game console. And over the five decades since, gaming has grown to become an industry worth billions. To mark the anniversary, a few weeks ago, cultural historian John Wills spoke to Matt Elton about how video games have reflected the world around them over the past half century and the ways in which history and gaming increasingly overlap. So, John, um, we are here today um, talking about the 50th anniversary of video games, which are everywhere. I mean, Wordle has been in the news a lot recently for being hugely popular and sold to the New York Times for a massive amount. Um, And there's games that are selling hundreds of millions of copies. Um, But what moment are we marking when we say this is the 50th anniversary? What happened 50 years ago to kickstart this whole process? Well, if we're talking about 1972, um, the 50th anniversary, you know, of that year, really we're talking about the Magnavox Odyssey as the first home video game console, and we're also talking about about Pong as well. So the beginning of video games in a popular way with a, a with a new popular audience begins in that year. And while video games might date 
earlier and there are ones that were done in the university sector or people playing around with computers in the military sector too, this is where the commercial beginnings start. And this is where ordinary people, you and I, start playing video games for the first time. And Pong, with that image of the two white rectangles and the ball square going backwards and forwards, is still, I think, quite a culturally recognisable symbol. But I don't know if people will have heard of the Magnavox Odyssey, which has got a brilliant name. Um, I had a quick look at pictures of it before we started this interview. It's a strange-looking thing. Um, how how popular, how much cultural reach did this particular console have when it was launched? Um, it was a relative success, uh, but you're right, it doesn't have the sense of nostalgia or popular recognition that, that Atari's Pong does. Um, everybody, uh, you know, school kids today, could, you know, still recognise, um, you know, Pong. And it's a very simple table tennis game that has great longevity and appeal to it. Whereas the Magnavox Odyssey um, is far more of a, has become far more of a, a retro or niche knowledge uh, thing. Um, it was actually designed by uh, uh, Ralph Beer, who was working for Sanders Associates, actually under a military contract. And Beer had this idea that how could we use television to play a game. Um, and, that, and that's something we all take for granted now. We all, we're all using screens for video games. But at the time, he was thinking, well, television is for watching stuff, but could we make television something more? Could we make it more interactive? Um, is there a market for something in addition sitting next to your television at home, you know, in your lounge? Um, and that's really what he did with the Magnavox Odyssey, which I think most people shortened it to Odyssey because it is quite a handful. Um, he designed a machine that you could plug into your television. It was very simple. It was a console with two very uh, white, almost futuristic-looking controllers. And you would, you would move dots on screen. So this was not a graphical realism. This was not Grand Theft Auto or anything like that. This was the simplest of, of technologies. Um, and the games were incredibly expensive that, that, that were packaged with the Odyssey. So, for example, a very basic tennis game, similar to Pong, actually. Um, an education title was in, included with it, uh, which we'll probably test this all even today. It was called Name the States, or, or simply States, where you have to name the 50 states of the United States as your fun entertainment thing to do. Um, and But... But it did actually sell around 350,000 units over a number of years, which was seen as a relative success, but, but not on the scale of Pong. A couple of quirky things about the Odyssey, Odyssey was that, firstly, it was, it was um, in the packaging, you got overlays to put across your television. You had board game elements included with the box. So you had some dice, poker chips paper money. And so it was this whole kind of entertainment gameplay item. And it was targeted, crucially, for the whole family. So you'd see parents playing it alongside kids in the TV advertisements. There was this sense that this was a new home television thing for, for everybody to get involved with. 
And am I right in saying, just to check, so you had this happening in 1972 and you also had Pong happening, was that in arcades or was that in a different environment? Yeah, exactly. That's one of the crucial differences. The Odyssey is is about your TV, it's about the home, it's about the family, whereas Pong um, is very much about the arcade space and the amusement space. And then Pong is very much about being brought in to existing arcades around the US and in the UK too and elsewhere. Um, and it, it's, it's a machine that is set up to compete with what is then a huge market, and that is pinball. In fact, when the first arcade machines such as Pong and its precursor computer space were shown to the amusement industry, they scoffed and actually thought, this will never catch on. We've got pinball, and pinball is is always going to dominate entertainment. Um, And they got it very slightly wrong there. And Nolan Bushnell, who backed Pong, got it very, you know, very much uh, correct with this being the future of, of entertainment. And obviously something like Pinball had been in existence for a long time at this point. Um, and you've mentioned the military, you've mentioned a couple of things. What are the sort of social and cultural currents that we need to understand to go back f- to why these two things emerged, why Pong emerged and why this console emerged at the same time in 1972? Yeah, definitely. One thing you've got is that the military and the universities are exploring computers. What computers can do, uh, how do we showcase computer power, and in a more frivolous and fun way, how can they entertain us? What can you program with them? And many of the early games are connected to this idea of how can we showcase a computer to the public? Uh, How can we show that it can have graphics? Uh, There's a lot of experimentalism going on. And one of the first computer games is MIT's Space War, so designed at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1962. Um, that, That game is showing two spaceships in a dogfight. And that's interestingly influenced by ideas about the space race, about the Cold War. And so games are tapping into period issues, uh, cultural influences are very strong. There's also the sense that there are entrepreneurs around. Uh, Atari's Bushnell is very much an entrepreneur looking for market opportunities with new technology. How can money be made from computers? Similarly, amusement manufacturers that already are marketing pinball machines, eventually they come over to video games as the next thing to make money and profit from. Uh, One example is Midway, uh, which sets up in 1958 in the US. It gradually moves into video games, recognising that this might might be a new entertainment uh, area that can make money from. And the classic example of this is Nintendo, started up as a playing card company, but then moves into the 80s, huge success with the Mario franchise. And the final thing I'd I'd say is that we might like to see in the backdrop that, you know, in this period of the 20th century, there's a lot more leisure time, playtime, entertainment time. You might even label it a little bit like a ludic century, that play is a lot more important to people at this time. Uh, And that might have taken the form prior to video games in things such as board games, theme parks, bowling, sports, but we're now shifting to a digital form of play in this latter half of the 20th century. 
So this idea of a ludic century, people um, tapping into the desire to play, um, these inventors and these companies are simply harnessing new technology to appeal to a market that already existed in some form, just there were new ways of being able to do that and new time to do that. Is that right? Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. I think I think there's um, a coming together with, of family desires, kids' desires to play, the natural human instinct to play with the with the coming with the popularity of television, the popularity of of Hollywood and entertainment. Yet we now how have computers and how are we going to interface digital technology into this mix? I was talking to a media historian the other day um, uh, about the advent of television and about people at the time, some of them, were incredibly concerned that this new medium would lead to people being, and I'm paraphrasing, numb from the eyeballs down. Um, d- was there a similar sort of moral panic uh, with the emergence of this new technology? Yeah, exactly. We, we tend to get the moral panics over you know, new technologies. And we can exceptionalise it and think, oh, it's unique to video games or it's unique to Hollywood. But 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 there seems to be waves and currents of concern about people's fascination with, with new tech. And this definitely happened with video games and actually happened at, at several points across video game history. Arguably, we still get some le- level of panic. One of the earliest cases involves an arcade game called Death Race, um, produced by the company Exidy in 1975, whereby, in a very, very basic level, uh, you run over gremlins while driving on a road. And partly because the graphics are so bad, those gremlins could equally be seen as humans. Um, And they make a screech, a a noise, and turn into tombstones. Um, Quickly, this game was titled a violent video game, one of the first kind of violent video games. Um, And it was posited that this is, you know, a nasty piece of, uh, of, of play to get involved in. For example, the National Safety Council's magazine in the US, Family Safety, called it insidious, gross and sick, sick, sick. Uh, definitely an emphasis on how sick it was. And, and they also, in the article calling for, it, calling for it to be banned, they said that, to quote, on TV, violence is passive, in this game, a player takes the first step to creating violence. And so a crucial difference there of the video game uh, compared to Hollywood, you know, to compared to film and television, that games produce, require participation. And to be a player, you are then acting on violence, you're being violent rather than just passively consuming it. Mm. That's so interesting because I can remember when I was at school in the 90s, um, people expressing very similar concerns about games like Doom, which is a 3D shooter game where you shoot non-human and human enemies. But there was a lot of concern even then. Has this concern in any way changed as culture has changed over the past 50 years or does it still remain a recurring sort of theme? As we spoke before, there have been waves of concern and specific games, I think, have drawn media attention because of their their violent connotations. And also, uh, sometimes companies, video game companies, have have wanted controversy or kind of provoked uh, the media to increase sales. I think the example that you're talking about with, with Doom and also Mortal Kombat is a popular one in the 1990s. They were... 
they were ultra-violent games, and Doom was one of the first games that had a, a 3D engine to it. It was a, a three-dimensional game. And I think this shift into 3D, and, I mean, Doom was not the most realistic, but there's a sense of violence is becoming a bit more realistic in video games. It's also getting a lot more graphic at that time. Um, you know, the finishing moves in Mortal Kombat where you decapitate people and, you know, there's blood in different colours, but, but the blood put on, on, on the screen. You can see how, from a, from a family perspective, um, you know, th that, that these are actually, you know, adult games, adult, adult entertainment, but there's this sense that you know, games are also for kids. And sometimes I think there's been confusion as still is today over, you know, an adult game clearly targeting 18 plus and, you know, the idea of games being consumed by primarily kids. And the reality is, is that, you know, the, the audience for video games definitely in the last few decades has been, you know, a large, you know, adult contingent play video games. Hmm. I'm interested in the sort of flip side of this realism uh, aspect. You mentioned earlier about how games in the 70s reflected the sort of geopolitical concerns. Are there um, games particularly that try to engage with the realism of politics and of culture at the time they were made? And has that changed across the intervening decades? Yes, so definitely games have been involved reflected and commented on the culture around them. Um, early games pick up themes of history, for example. So uh, they use the image of the Wild West to introduce people to video games. If you're everybody knows what a cowboy does. And so if you have a very elemental stick figure on screen, you, you know, you know what to do in a video game. You don't, don't need a big backstory. But more interestingly, they also comment on, on serious contemporary issues. Um, we might label older games serious games just as we do modern games and one example of this that i'm i'm very interested in is is a, a classic and very popular game by atari produced in the early 1980s called missile command um, and it's so much a commentary and product of the 1980s cold war uh, one of the lead designers on the game dave thurrer um, was obsessed and worried with the danger of, of weapons destroying America, or the Soviet Union attacking the United States. And Thurer spoke of how Missile Command, for him, embodied the Cold War nightmare the world lived in. Now, in the game Missile Command, you basically have to defend a few cities from incoming nuclear missiles. It's an arcade game, it's very quick, uh, it's very, uh, some would say, fun as well. You basically are caught in this defensive position. And um, while working on it, the designers of the game ponder actually how can they make it more realistic? How can they make it actually connected with people's concern over nuclear war? And they have the idea that, that the cities could be labelled your home cities. So they suggest in their original idea that they send the arcade machine out to different states, to different countries, and then it's coded so that the cities, you input the cities that are local to you. So, for, for, for example, in California, there'd be the you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara. 
And the player would therefore have more of an emotional attachment to defending their hometown and their, their, their family and their livelihood against, against a nuclear aggressor, a, a, a Soviet, the Soviet attack. Now, ultimately, some of these ideas, these, these, this Cold War commentary is diluted in the final product. I mean, that's partly out of needing to make the game simpler. Uh, we're talking 1980s, so, so, you know, the computer technology is not amazing at that time. But also to make it more kind of generic and, and more play-friendly. But one thing they do keep in the final version of Missile Command is that ultimately the player, however try, however hard he or she tries to win this game, to keep going, they will always lose. Their cities will always be destroyed. And so intriguingly, that highlights how in nuclear war, there, there, there isn't a winner. That even if you're doing your very best, at some point, you're going to lose. And when we think about the Cold War and ideas of mutually assured destruction and about countries, whole countries being destroyed, that game is gamifying those sorts of politics and it's making satire about the Cold War at the same time that in the you know in the US and the UK we've got escalating cold war tensions and a growing nuclear arms race in the 80s still to come on the history extra podcast anybody who's maybe a teenager or somebody in their 20s uh, what they know about the American West, they're probably their first reference point will be Red Dead Redemption 2. That shows the impact and influence of video games, but also the potential for them to create interest in history. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. That's really interesting because... um and this may not be right, so correct me if I'm wrong, games, it sounds like, aren't necessarily engaging with historical moments or issues in the same way that, say, a book or even a TV programme might do, because they have to go about it in a different way. Um, are there other games that you think engage with history or with politics in a particularly interesting or illustrative way? Yeah, I think that many games about uh, the American West, because I'm an American historian, many of those games are, are playing with nostalgia for the West. They're playing with um, patriotism about the American West. Um, they're, they're, often, um, they're often responsible at times for regurgitating old myths of history and 
playing to people's popular understanding of the past, but not always correcting that understanding. You know, some of the older Western titles, for example, uh, like Gunfight, they are they are really essentializing what history is about, and they're simplifying it for a popular audience. So, just so, when was when was Gunfight released? So, Gunfight was released in the nineteen seventies, so nineteen seventy five, and then we have a follow up called Boot Hill uh, in nineteen seventy seven. Uh, those games are quite amusing because the first one is such an early uh, video game that the computer can't control uh, the two cowboys on screen, and you have to wait for two people to actually turn up to do the duel um yeah whereas the second one they do actually manage it for their for one of the characters to be android for to be an android but there's a there, there is a danger of that some of these games are perpetuating old old myths and old ideas about history i think that that's shifted in you know in recent years and recent decades there's more of a complexity and more of a nuance to video games but there is still this sense that these are entertainment products and they're often promoting ideas about, you know, white man's history or the white protagonist, the white saviour, or ideas about conquest that really, you know, computer games could actually show us more the other side of, of those histories too. Mm. As, as games as a market and as a medium has matured and evolved, has there been more of an engagement to represent and tell stories from diverse groups and of diverse histories? To a degree, uh, I would say yes. I mean, you get different perspectives on on this. Uh, If we deal, for example, with representation of of women in video games, there's been the problematic image of video games as being often traditionally like a teenage or young male pursuit and kind of pandering to that that audience. Um, One of the interesting early examples of shifting that image was in the early 80s when we get Miss Pac-Man, which is basically uh, an acknowledgement that many players of the original Pac-Man were actually female. And so a game might be designed uh, targeting uh, that audience uh, alongside the original game. There are some surveys as well suggesting that that people from you know different different backgrounds have different tastes in games, and I think the industry has tried to pander or shape those kind of expectations too. Um, an example to do with um, the complexities of women in games. Um, a classic example of this would be the original Tomb Raider game from the nineteen nineties. Released on the Sega Saturn and then the PlayStation, um, it was very much part of games becoming more cool, uh, more adult, and certainly in that time more respectable and becoming more mainstream. And, And Tomb Raider was a hugely successful video game. If we think about Lara Croft, the you know the protagonist, the woman in the game. It's it's maybe a little bit more complicated. On the one hand, we have here a woman as as a hero, a game character who's who's definitely feminine, definitely female. And more than that, we have almost like a British female Indiana Jones. Uh, She's involved in an action adventure. um, And the character Lara Croft is also picking up a period in the 1990s in the UK where we have girl power, Buffy the Vampire. There's a sense that in a positive way, 
you're you're entering and taking over what might have been seen a male space and you're you're liberating it by playing as Lara. On the other side, you might say that actually boys like playing as Lara because they're being voyeuristic. Uh, Lara is an object of desire to play with, uh, almost like this idea of a, like a virtual babe in a sense. And so, you know, there's a complexity there with games whereby you might see progression on some levels, but also still pandering to, to, to a male audience with them too. And, and these sorts of issues of, of, of women in games you know, continue right through you know, to recent years. While, while surveys suggest there's, suggest there's around a 50-50 split in, in who plays video games, there's still a sense that the games industry itself is made up more as male gamers and male developers, and that female game designers, female journalists, and also female gamers are not so welcome within that fold. So I think there's, you know, there's progression, but there's also lots more to be done there. And I think one of the interesting things is that video games, there's such an opportunity for the avatar, the protagonist in games, to be whoever you want. For non-binary, female, male, whatever you want your character to be, you can create. And there's an ability of games for us to be who we want to be in the game, to design ourselves, to explore what it means to be disabled, to be another gender, another race, all those opportunities that sometimes haven't been really maximised with video games, I feel. How much engagement is there between the worlds of history and of video games? So you're obviously a historian who specialises in video games. Do you think the two um, disciplines, the two fields, uh, interact in any meaningful way? I think this is an area that's shifting and shifting towards, you know, a better situation. I think in in early decades, there was a sense whereby video games, partly because they couldn't be realistic, the graphics couldn't be realistic, everything was more symbolic and more about entertainment. Did you really need to bring in, you know, historians? Did you really need to bring in experts in reality, you probably didn't need to that much. Whereas the last 10, 20 years of games, whereby there's always a pursuit for the at the very least graphical realism, if not story realism, there is a need to bring in expertise from the outside. And video game companies, to some degree, you know, do accept that and, and have healthy relationships with scholars. Um, Rockstar which has, to some degree, a controversial reputation, some of its games have been very carefully researched. Uh, Alain Noir, um, staff for Rockstar, spent considerable time mapping historic maps of Alain streets to to get a full and accurate historical representation of, of, of Los Angeles. I think there's been a tension on graphical realism, but not as much of a a step forward in terms of story progression. I think that could still be taken further. Uh, But I do think that uh, a sense of history and games is crossing over more productively. And you can see that in games such as Assassin's Creed series or in Red Dead Redemption 2. You can see that there's a dynamic playing out there. And also for the audience, these games provide an insight into history or an excitement about history. If you ask 
anybody who's maybe a teenager or somebody in their 20s Uh, what they know about the American West, they're probably their first reference point will be Red Dead Redemption 2. That shows the impact and influence of video games, but also the potential for them to create interest in history and to get exciting excitement about history too. Because something like Assassin's Creed allows you to be really immersed in, I think I'm right in saying, ancient civilizations. Um, in a way that you could potentially use to teach historical knowledge, I suppose. Um, another aspect of this is sort of the the teaching dimension of video games. Um, are there particularly important moments or titles in that aspect of the story? Yes, I think that people have assumed that video games uh, sometimes are about entertainment, about fun, and making all kinds of things in life uh, fun. But actually, they've always had an educational component to them. In the early 70s, one of the first computer games is is the Oregon Trail, which was a US-based education project. It was, was in a sense, um, a home project of three trainee teachers designing a game that they could use in the classroom to teach school kids about the American West. That's one of the first game titles but we've had we have a sense of uh education and games sometimes they are artificially split but actually games such as assassin's creed creed highlight how a game can be fun and enjoyable and educational at the same time and that designers can build in museum modes or exploration modes that deliberately satisfy the the audience who want to explore some of the minutiae about history or the feel of history um, but there are, there are lots of games across the last 50 years that have educational components. And people used to, you know, it was, stand, it was it, in the 1980s, people would actually kind of learn about computers too by kind of typing things in, typing, doing their own code. So I think there's an educational component about history, but also about learning about the technology and computers too as part of video games. This is obviously an enormously whistle-stop tour through 50 years of quite a complex subject. Are there any um, individuals or moments or developments across that span that you think we should talk about that we haven't so far? I think what one uh, element, we, we spoke a little bit about gender, and I think one of the, one of the interesting things that games haven't done uh, brilliantly well is to tackle the issue of diversity uh, and race. And it's a shame because there have been, you know, designers, uh, engineers who come from Mexican-American, African-American backgrounds. But I think one of the interesting things about video games is is kind of the white character is default. Um, the stereotyping of other uh, ethnicities has also been a problem with video games. For example, African-Americans have often been depicted as gangsters, living in, in urban environments, all their sports people, or Native Americans have been presented as historic hunters. And there's, there's a sense that uh, the colour of the avatar has not been shifted, has not been flexible enough. And even when video games have been uh, attempting to present people from different backgrounds, they haven't always really done it uh, supreme, you know, in, in, in a good way. 
for example, the GTA or Grand Theft Auto franchise uh, that spans what almost two decades. You've been able to play African Americans in Grand Theft Auto, but in a sense, when you play as them, you're being dropped into almost a black stereotype, living a life of crime, challenging the police, um, playing to a white version of an African-American's life. Um, and it amounts almost to, to the term of race or identity tourism, that you're jumping into that role, but, but there isn't an attempt to actually gain proper understanding, empathy, or, or, or kind of reflection on what you're actually doing. Um, there have been other titles that have deliberately, you know, have racist elements to them. Uh, Mario, the Mario series, for example, Nintendo must have been very unhappy over this. There was actually a Super KKK Brothers Mario hack that changed the game into uh, a, a, a racist uh, attack upon, upon, upon black people, whereby turtles were turned into African-Americans and things like that. So, so the, there, is, there is a difficult history again over kind of progression there and updating the format um, that, that I think you know, could still be done. Um, but in a more positive way, you know, other video games have really shown highlighted um, in, environmental issues, uh, they've touched on politics. Um, they've showed a kind of um, highlighted challenges in society very effectively. Um, I've talked about negative games to do with, with race, but there are interesting examples that have tried to tackle that issue, like Detroit Become Human uh, from a few years ago, is a game whereby you are basically... A, part of an android group exploited and leading a civil rights struggle against oppression with lots of analogies to the 1960s. So games can be very creative too with how, how they play with concepts um, on, on, on the plus side. One of the things you research is dystopian uh, futures as shown in video games. Um, do you think that the way that video games present those kinds of societies tells us anything about uh, history and about the present moment. Games have intriguingly been caught up in in showing dystopias, exploring dystopias right from the get-go. For example, this relationship between video games and dystopia dates back to one of the first games, Computer Space, designed by Bushnell, who I mentioned earlier. Um, that game is actually features in the in the movie Soylent Green from 1973, which tells about a world that's run out of resources, um, whereby people are literally eating products made up of themselves to get by. An overpopulated, overcrowded, crippled world and yet the elite business people in, in that film are playing video games, <laughs> which is a kind of intriguing product placement, but also connecting video games with the future, whatever it may be. Um, games have, have allow us, I think in, in an intriguing fashion, they allow us to explore um, future places, future Americas or Englands, what will the world be like? They're very um, typically sci-fi, but they have some very 
good examples because you're participating in that narrative. You're seeing the dystopia play out. You're often responsible for maybe helping save the world, uh, putting quite a lot of pressure on yourself. Uh, You're helping save the world or you're a small part in seeing catastrophe culture at its worst. So I think you you bear witness and you participate in these environmental worlds. Um, and there's been a number of games over the time. 1990s, you had a great game called Echo the Dolphin, where you saw the world through, through a dolphin's eyes. The Last of Us, um, in more recent years, a very dark parable about, about where the world is heading. Um, there's a National Park Service game called Save the Park, about kind of protecting parks in a better way. I think that there's always potential to push these things more and more creative with and with more creativity. But I do think there's there's a fascination with dystopia that video games pick up and play with, and we do so too. And what about the real future of video games? If you had to sort of, we, we started by talking about one specific console released in 1972. If you had to pick a handful of key moments in the development of the technology of the medium between now and then and look to the future, what would you highlight, I suppose? There are two very obvious things. One is the shift into the online world and online gaming. Um, The release of uh, uh, Microsoft's Xbox, the 21st century gaming is very much based around online worlds and online play. And I think that that's a very important shift from uh, playing by yourself or playing with a family through to playing online with people you either know or don't know around the world. Um, I think games in that way also uh, are always connecting us with technology and how the world is heading. They're kind of guiding us and teaching us about digital society. They're shifting us online without us even kind of realising it because we're playing a game, but we're also getting used to being in these different worlds. I think that that's one aspect. I think another uh, aspect, aspect would be the uh, the virtual world, the the sense of alternate realities, but also of wearing VR headsets and being completely in those other worlds in a way that um, early attempts to do that quite miserably failed. For example, in the 1990s, Nintendo had a, a virtual verse, version, a virtual boy, uh, where you could basically put on goggles and enter a kind of VR world that basically made you so sick you quickly wanted to turn it off because because through motion sickness. But I think that they... Just just, just quickly, for people who might be unfamiliar, Virtual Boy uh, was the brand name because Nintendo released Game Boy, so I suppose it was an extension of that branding. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's it's an attempt by Nintendo to kind of... Nintendo are marked by uh, innovation, and I, I think that's their their attempt to get ahead of the curve, really. But but in a sense, the technology wasn't uh, quite there to do that. Nintendo's virtual VR in in the nineteen nineties, VR in the in the twenty in twenty twenty two is a very different product, and I think increasingly immersing ourselves in almost you know matrix like worlds is is, is the is the future of video, video gaming for many. I think also games such uh, games that aren't necessarily games, for example, Second Life, which was 
a software whereby you would live online. And for some, that would mean a game or play. But for others, it meant just chatting to people, uh, opening a store, selling goods. Um, those sorts of ideas of living in a virtual way are very much you know, where we're heading, I think, in terms of both games, but also with life, that there's an interface between the two going on there. Um, but hopefully we're not going to head straight into into the matrix. <laughs> or certainly we should head away from that. It's, it's really interesting. We started by talking about the, the ludic century, this idea of play. It's interesting that the medium that is supposedly most connected to entertainment and being entertained can grapple with these really deep questions about the past and the future, I suppose. Yes, I mean, it, it highlights that entertainment is not purely about fun, that video games have deeper meanings to them, and they should be taken seriously. I, I think that too often there's a sense that that fun is is without meaning, whereas actual play can reveal a great deal about history, about culture, and about you know what values we have and what things we want to promote. And so, analysing video games, we can learn you know a great deal about ourselves and the culture that we live in. There'll be people listening to this podcast who. Um, are really into history but haven't really engaged that much with video games or are confused by the massive titles we've kind of talked about today. Are there a couple of sort of video games that you could recommend for people who are interested in both things or for people who might want to find out more about some of the things we've talked about? Certainly in terms of video games I mean, there's, there's thousands and thousands of titles out there and it's very much about if you're interested in history then some of the titles we've already said about Assassin's Creed or Red Dead Redemption 2 um, really highlight how uh, the potential of of play and history coming together, and they're very much they're very much commercial, commercial, accessible, and professionally put together products. So, on on some level, there's those. Equally, if you want to learn more about video game history or the origins of it, then you can definitely look up uh, simulations of old Atari classics, you know, including Missile Command or Pong, and get a sense of the huge nostalgia there is for these early video games now and uh, that video gamers are keen to protect their past and to preserve their heritage. And these are part of, of that heritage. They, they, they highlight the beginnings of an industry and the beginnings of an entertainment form. And you can certainly you know, check out uh, those basic games and, and see the huge difference between a game of Pong <laughs> and then a modern video game. It's hard to, to see the two things as in any way linked. Um, but they are, and they often draw on the same ideas about genre and play and competition. They're, they're all working by some similar mechanics too. That was John Wills. John is the author of Gamer Nation, Video Games and American Culture, which was published in 2019 by John Hopkins. He's also currently working on a research project into dystopian futures, which is funded by the British Academy. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.